The whole question before the world is that of government. The entire issue in front of every one of us when we go back to our workaday week that we confront every single morning on television news, every newspaper we pick up, is that of government. How shall we be governed? What is the government doing? God promises us government. That's what we're going to hear. It's a repetitious theme at the feast because the feast pictures the setting up of the kingdom of God on this earth. Sure. But I want to refer to briefly again in Revelation 2.26, To him that overcometh will I grant power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. I want to think about that during the course of this message this morning, because it occurred to me that not just anyone knows how to wield a rod of iron. Now let's see. How would you spank your child with a rod of iron? Well, as they make the crazy joke about how do porcupines make love, somebody said, very carefully. Well, that applies to how you would spank a little child with a rod of iron. Very carefully, very tenderly, making sure because the rod of iron would be so hard, so brittle, and so heavy if you're envisioning maybe a quarter-inch rod of iron about this long in your hand, or a half-inch thick, like a piece of steel. That's a rod of iron. Now, how would you rule with a rod of iron? Not just everybody, not just anybody, is qualified to wield a rod of iron. Because he or she might not know just where to hit somebody, or how hard. Now, how would you wield a rod of iron with somebody who just made an honest mistake? How do you wield a rod of iron for somebody who is just plain stupid and doesn't know any better? Somebody who is underprivileged, impoverished, or just uneducated? What about somebody who has simply been deceived, misled, and does something that is wrong? If you suddenly had rulership over a city, you're looking at a group of human beings of every conceivable race, from every background and culture, uh, every one of them absolutely unique and individual and having different tastes and likes and dislikes, coming from a different background, different education, different perspective and outlook on life. And you're having to deal with all these disparate ideas, ideologies, backgrounds and approaches, including religion. And you're standing there as the ultimate judge with a rod of iron. Now, for years and years and years, God's Church, and I refer to the parent organization as well as God's Church just at large, because remember, God's church is not a physical organization. It is a spiritual organism. It is a spiritual organism. No man can organize and then tuck into a file drawer with an official looking piece of paper with a seal and a blue ribbon and some paper clips on it, God's church. Because God's church depends upon the very Holy Spirit of God from heaven in the hearts and minds of God's children, and Christ always insisted, I am the vine, you are the branches. He said it, I am the vine. He did not say Peter is the vine, and all the rest of you are the branches. He said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Now, we are one of the branches. All right, well, in God's church, it has been taught to God's people that the only place on this earth where God's government is in effect 
is in place and is being administered is in God's church. Is that true? Now let's go back and remember about the rod of iron. I talked to a group of little ladies in a, a kind of a, well it was a women's club, a ladies club, down in a little town near where I live called Palestine. They insist on calling it Palestine instead of Palestine in East Texas. And at the time I talked to them, I wanted to talk about recidivism, civil justice, and of course the entire system of prisons, of riots in prisons, of crime, of what the civil authorities were doing about crime and justice. How effective were the judges and the trial lawyers and prosecutors? And how effective was the prison system in Texas? And I just went through some of the situations that we are familiar with involving crime. And I told her the story that I'd heard not too long before that time of the little old lady walking down the street who had been mugged by some great big six foot four inch thug about 19 years of age wearing heavy shoes. And he grabbed her bag and threw her to the ground and she was quite elderly. And then for good measure as he ripped her purse from her arm, kicked her in the mouth, shattered her dentures and put her in a hospital near death. It's a wonder she survived. I went through the entire story of the man whose daughter had been killed by some rotten rapist who grabbed her and then beat her to death with a chain from a motorcycle and tossed her body in a copse of woods near where we live in Tyler, Texas. He went and confessed to the officers where he had thrown the body and they thought we need to find this girl and see if she is still alive because she was still basically moaning and just barely living when he had thrown her in there. And so he confessed he had done it and he took the officers to the exact spot and said there she is. By the time they got there she was already dead. She had been raped, brutally beaten to death. They arrested the man of course. A trial was held in Smith County Courthouse in Tyler, Texas, and the trial, the defender, you know, the attorney that was defending him, made a very big point about the fact that the man's rights had been violated. And I was telling the little old ladies about the case. They knew of it because they'd read the Tyler paper. Because, you see, he had not been read the Miranda rights. You have a right to remain silent. You have a right to call an attorney. You know, and anything you say, maybe you weigh these rights. You realize that anything you may say in a tape recorder could be used against you in a court of law, etc. Do you understand your rights? That apparently had somehow just slipped the idea or the minds of the arresting people, and they had not read him his rights. He didn't have a lawyer there. And the lawyer didn't tell him, don't talk to the police, don't say a word, don't tell them where this girl is, don't confess the crime. So his rights had been violated. And so he was let off. And he went free. And he was walking the streets a free man. Well, the local Tyler television station went down and interviewed his father and asked how he felt. And his father, I guess, committed a crime virtually because he said if he could find the rotten, unprintable so-and-so, he'd take his shotgun and, and kill him. And a lot of people thought very badly about that father for saying a thing like that. How can you feel that way toward a human being when all he did was beat your daughter to death with a motorcycle chain? Well, I told the little old ladies about my trips to Cairo, Egypt. And I said, I have a very nice watch here and a very nice ring. It took me many, many years to accumulate that. And I accumulated that thing when it didn't cost but a tiny 10% or less of what it would cost today. 
I said, you know, I can walk the streets of Cairo, Egypt, or any of the other Arab capitals where they believe in the religion of Islam with my watch and my ring right on my hand and my arm and absolutely without fear in throngs of people, just milling people, most of them in the complete poverty level who have nothing. And I'm safer than I am on the streets of Tyler, Texas. I guess the murder capital of the world is now Houston, maybe right behind it, Dallas. Used to be some of the cities in the east and the big cities like Chicago, New York, Detroit, or what have you, but I think Houston is now the murder capital of the world. But just in Houston alone, there are more murders than in all the Scandinavian countries and the British Commonwealth of Nations put together. I should say just the British Isles, not Commonwealth of countries, not including Canada and Australia. And that is a terrible black eye on the United States. As I told them a little bit about the Koran, that actually some of the tenets of the judgments and the statutes of God and the Ten Commandments of God are included in the Koran, and that a part of the administrative justice meted out to criminals is right directly from the Mosaic Law that Jesus quoted in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said in the old time, you know, that there should be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it went on in the Old Covenant, smiting for smiting, burning for burning. Thus shall you put away wickedness from among you. And so I portrayed this to these people. I said, you know, in, in Arab countries, if you steal a loaf of bread, they cut off your hand. And I said, I've seen a few Arabs here and there with only one hand. But I've never seen an Arab with no hands. And you might go by a public shop and there will be a hook in a thumb, a human thumb, and there is a blackened, old, withered-up hand hanging there. Someone tried to steal from that shop, and they chopped off his hand. This is back years ago, maybe, in some of the Arab countries, but in some of them they still do it. An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. I suggested, after I went through the abysmal failure of the prison system, the wretchedness of the mafia gangs, the drug scene, things I don't want to go into, sadomasochistic homosexuality. When new people are introduced into prison, they are gang-raped. I'm speaking of males in prisons today. I didn't go into all the detail, but I let them know what a wretched, horrible environment it was, how absolutely unsuccessful, what a failure of society to sweep its problems under a carpet, put them in incarceration, pretend they do not exist at an enormous multi-billion dollar tax burden upon the entire nation when in fact something quite differently could be done which would be immediately successful. And I suggested what that might be. I said, what would you do if you caught that six foot four thug, 19 years of age, who kicked that little old lady right in the teeth? How would you like to see him tied down on a floor and a great big six foot four deputy sheriff come up to him with about a number 12 loggers boot with big steel caulks on it and just haul off and drop kick him right smack in the mouth? You will not believe the response I got from those little old ladies. They almost stood up and cheered. They said, yes, that's exactly what ought to happen to him. And I thought, I'm talking to a bloodthirsty crowd here, you know, little old ladies. And uh, I went on to suggest, then what do you think if for the next two years of his life he has to serve the little old lady? First he has to pay all of her dental bills, all of her hospital, and all of her doctor bills.
And he's got to work to do that. Then he's got to go to her home and clean it completely and mow her yard and paint her house and be her household servant for two years. Do you think that might teach him a lesson? Now, he's got to go to the dentist, of course, because he doesn't have any front teeth left. And he's got to be in the hospital with his jaw wired shut because it broke the faceplate and the lower jaw in about 16 pieces, right? And the, but after that, he's free to go. He's not in jail. You don't have to pay a dime to support this guy in jail where he begins to become a part of the Mexican Mafia, the Black Mafia, whatever they are, and dealing in drugs, and, and because of the frustration of virile, strong men incarcerated among themselves and so on, many normal men are actually inducted into what otherwise they would never begin to do in a situation like that. It is a horrible thing. God Almighty never provided in the Word of God for putting a person in jail. He said restitution and absolute administering of justice, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, smiting for smiting, burning for burning, and life for life. And thus shall you put mischief and evil away from yourselves. So, can you apply this to God's church? Now, is God's government, God's government, I will give you a rod of iron and with it you shall rule the nations, and you shall smash them as the potter smashes a useless vessel when it is smashed to shivers, even as it was given me of my father. And he describes rulership that is absolute rulership. Now in the world today, every kind of government, every kind of government has been attempted down through history. Absolute monarchies, limited monarchies, democratic and republican representative system forms of government like ours the more nearly so-called perfect republicanism or democratic form of government in, in, uh, uh, over in Switzerland with its Canton system and so on, more so than ours perhaps as a model. But there are oligarchies, there are complete dictatorships and despots with only one human being in total control of government. The Soviet Union started out as a revolution of distressed, downtrodden people beneath the regime of a brutal and not caring and completely oblivious cloistered royal family called the Tsar and the Tsarina, with a demented, demonic, demon-possessed Rasputin as kingmaker behind the throne. And because of the enormous excesses of the elite class of the Soviet Union, or of Russia as it was known in those days, and because of a man named Lenin, or Lenin as we know him, who studied the writings of Marx and of Haushofer and Mackinder and many others and devised a system where the so-called proletariat or the people, always the peasants, the little people, would rule. And if anybody ever devised a system that seems to sound good on its surface, of course Karl Marx did, acknowledged really many of the root sources and causes of evils in society, as did Lenin. They're able to analyze what causes all of this, they can see elitism, and they can see that a clique of individuals at the top holding total sway over the workers, that the workers are always the peasant class, that they provide all of this, and just a tiny few are living in absolute splendiferous, wondrous, glamour, splendor, and like multi-multi-millionaires and eat the delicacies of a king's table where everybody else is at the poverty level, and there is no middle class. And yet the workers are the people who produce all of this that the king and his family can enjoy. 
So they were fair game for a violent revolution. And the revolution was based upon the idea that the people ought to have a say-so in government. Let's have it for the people and of the people and by the people. So in the Soviet Union, it's always people. It's the people's republic. It's the people's army and the people's collective farm and the people's store and the people's navy. Everybody is people and everybody is comrade and everybody is equal, aren't they? No, they're not. No, they're not. It degenerated into an oligarchy. But an oligarchy, as you know, is like a committee group of people, a whole group of people who share rulership at the top. But you know, if three human beings are sharing a lifeboat tossing in the middle of the Atlantic, there's going to be a fight over who gets to sit in the front. And so here we are with an oligarchy, and we know in the days of Andropov, who of course helped getting get rid of Beria after Beria's massive purges when he was the head of the original organization, the GRU. Well, before that it was called the NKVD, and now of course it's called the KGB, an almost unpronounceable, very lengthy series of three Russian words. And there are inner service rivalries, and there are internal politics and rivalries in the communist oligarchy. Now a man who is one year younger than I am, whose name is Mikhail, meaning Michael Gorbachev, is at the head of the monstrous Soviet Union of Socialist Republics, which has, in a very short span of a couple of decades, successfully put together a colonial empire transcending that of Britain, Portugal, Spain, France, and the United States in the greatest heyday of imperialism and of colonial empires. The Soviet Union has gobbled up more people, more territory, in the last couple of decades than all of the great empires of the world put together. She rules now from the Horn of Africa all of the way to the other southwestern coast of Africa and into our own hemisphere down across these tossing Gulf waters to Cuba, only 90 miles off of our shore. Below us in Central America, communist conspiracies, revolutionaries being supplied communist guns and money are trying to overthrow a very weak and wavering and corrupt democratic government in El Salvador. Nicaragua virtually already gone. That threatens Panama. Panama is like a juggler, a part of the very life's blood of the United States of America and our trading lanes. Here is the Soviet Union, the vaunted Soviet Union that knows how to give its people what Almighty God says he will provide. Governments promise what God says he will provide. Let's see what God says he will provide right quickly. Over in the book of Leviticus, the 26th chapter. You're familiar with this, so I'll refer to it in passing and not take a long time with it. The question is, if you will walk in my statutes, keep my commandments, and keep my laws, verse 3, then I will give you rain in due season. And the land will yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall reach to the vintage, the vintage shall reach to the sowing time. You'll eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. What's that talking about? Food, shelter, and clothing. I will give you peace in the land. It's called, in national terminology, security. Our security forces, our defense forces. So you will have rest in the land, and you will have tranquility and lack of threat from enemies from without. And you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. How many nations have that? Does Afghanistan, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary? Now, basically, in the United States, uh, we have that within reason, except many of our people cannot lie down without being afraid because they fear crime or they fear other things that are around them. 
I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. You're going to be safe from war, from attack, from an enemy, from without. And you shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase an hundred, a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. For I will have respect unto you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and establish my covenant with you, and you shall eat old store, and bring forth the old because of the new. What were the German people promised as Hitler rode to power in great pomp and ceremony clear back in the early 1930s? They were promised a chicken in every pot and a Volkswagen in every garage. And what were the Americans promised? And the New Deal and the NRA and the W... Uh, that was a different NRA than the National Rifle Association, by the way. That is a predecessor that meant something else entirely. And the WPA and all the Soviet, I should say, so socialists, excuse me, work projects that were extant in the United States in the 1930s as we tried to labor out from beneath the Great Depression under the Roosevelt, uh, Roosevelt administration. Franklin Delano Roosevelt came as close to having dictatorial power as has ever occurred in the history of a democracy. And perhaps it was necessary for that period of time. The United States of America at that period of time had she not been drawn into World War II, may never have arisen to the stature of greatness that we achieved by 1945. Fully 50% of our major industrialists, among them Henry Ford, who had a picture of Hitler on his wall and was a great admirer of the man, urged our government to remain isolationist and to have nothing to do with a war that was tearing Europe apart and threatening to completely conquer the British Empire. Joseph Kennedy, the father of Jack Kennedy, urged our president to urge the British to bring the entire British home fleet to American ports and to simply surrender to Hitler and to cooperate with him and to establish a United States of Europe because of the advantages it would mean to trade and because they all recognized that Hitler was the greatest threat in the world to communism, which the United States and Britain both feared. The real history of that period is it gradually comes before us 45 years, 40 years afterward. It's far more fascinating than the history that was fed to us piecemeal and sort of hand-fed to us by the media back during the days when it was happened when we had largely a controlled press. Very different indeed. Now, in the Soviet Union today, they promise what every other government tries to promise people. Hitler did, Roosevelt did, our government does today. Health, security, protection, peace, plenty, a piece of the pie, a piece of the action. You never hear a State of the Union address without our president, who is an admirable man, a man whom I happen to have a certain love for, and I like the man personally, but he is a man. And he is a man of great limitations. And he is just one man. And he has certain short-sightedness and a certain rather poor record in the state of California when I was a citizen paying taxes and he promised not to raise taxes and was elected as governor and taxes went up something like four to eight fold in about four years. Other people are a little leery and I cannot take the democratic point of view that Reagan is evil and he's a liar. I just do not believe any of those things about the man. I think basically he is a good and decent man and I think he is an admirable man and I have a respect for President Reagan. But President Reagan is a man and he is not going to usher in the millennium for America. And in every State of the Union address he talks about those very things, millennial things. A great piece of the pie, you know, the American dream, young people owning a home and starting a business and, 
Here we are with these massive problems we have that I can talk to you about for hours and hours and never run out of breath, of unemployment, of massive armies, of illegal immigrants invading our shores from everywhere, whether the Near East, Far East, cent uh, Western Europe, whether in Central and South America, especially Mexico, the drain that that is on the school systems and the tax base of our country, the drain it is to have all of these hundreds of thousands and millions of Southeast Asians, of Campuchians or Cambodians, of Vietnamese and Laotians, of Thailandese and other people coming into the United States, of people who are in this country, and even like guests of the country who then take advantage of the great freedoms that it offers and turn right around and demonstrate against the very country that gives them safe haven. The problems are absolutely enormous, but these governments tend to promise a millennium, peace and plenty and prosperity and happiness and success and security, protection from your enemies from without. That's what every government has promised. I find it, and I'm going to repeat a thing I told some of the brethren up around the Tyler area on the Feast of Trumpets, I find it one of the greatest ironies of all that the Soviet Union, which has been vaunted among its own people as the greatest possible solution to human government that has ever come along on the face of the earth, with its collectivism, its collective farms, collective state-run stores, with its tractor drivers and its doctors making exactly the same salaries with this strata of society that absolutely stresses equality, has proved itself the greatest, most colossal failure of any government in the history of the world. Its people are held in subjection by terror, by fear. They are afraid, defectors are afraid to defect, and there are, and this rings a bell somewhere in the back of my mind, don't ask me why. But there are tens of millions, probably, of Soviets who suspect, as they get a little peek at the West, you might know, you see some of the documentaries about how popular blue jeans are or rock music, which is kind of sad, but that happens to be something that the Soviets go for, the youth certainly do, or Western clothing, and of course even Western foods and Western movies, and that alcoholism is an enormous problem in the Soviet Union and of great concern to the leadership over there. I find it an irony, then, that in the midst of their vaunted, lofty projections about the marvelous, wondrous gift of the Soviet oligarchy to the Soviet people, that they are in fact the most colossal failure of human government that has ever come along. Let me give you just one proof of that that I think is very indicative. One quarter of the Soviet population is engaged in agriculture. In the United States, 3.4% of the population is engaged in agriculture, and we not only feed all of ourselves, but we feed much of the rest of the world. A quarter of the population in the Soviet Union, 25% agriculture. Several years ago, for some reason, and I think it was, uh, it may have been before Andropov, I think it may have been even clear back during the latter days of Khrushchev, but I would be surprised at that. But anyway, there was some governmental decision only a few years back that allowed Soviet farmers to set aside one and a quarter acres of the state collective land on which they lived and worked and farmed for themselves to grow their own crops and to produce some food for their own family. Now, that 1.4 acres, as it has been put in, put in production by all of these millions of Soviet farm families and peasants, only represents 3.1 percent 
of the total land in production. Yet those 1.4 acres in 1984 produced approximately 50% of all of the beef, poultry, eggs, and all of the vegetables, not talking about grain and cereals, but all the vegetables, the beef, the poultry, the eggs, and the milk, dairy products that are consumed by the Soviet Union. Now think of what I said. Does that blow your mind or not? Does that not prove, wouldn't it prove to a knowledgeable Russian leader that the system of free enterprise, of giving a man a piece of land and saying it is yours, keep it, it's yours, you, you can have it, and you can grow on it what you will grow for your family, and you can make a profit. And so they trade. There's a vicious black market in the Soviet Union, and there is barter going on, like there is increasingly in the United States, as millions of Americans make deals in cash and barter for goods because they know the all-seeing eye of the IRS big brother cannot determine exactly what is happening, and therefore they don't have to pay the federal income tax if they do this in cash or in barter. Well, there's a kind of a black market in the Soviet Union that has the government very concerned over there because there is no incentive. There is no profit motive. There is no freedom for a person to express himself. Everyone is to be a little yellow pencil. Everyone is to be exactly the same. Everyone is to be collective. And everyone is to be under the stifling control of the oligarchy. And everybody spies on everybody else. Members of the family are told to spy on and to report on anti-Soviet, anti-party, anti-government things that will come along if someone were suspected of being somehow a saboteur in the assembly line of a modern missile factory somewhere near Kutsk. Of course, they would probably send him and his entire family out to Siberia somewhere, and they would never be heard from again. There are thousands of Soviets who have defected over the years, maybe hundreds, it may not number up into the thousands, Many of them have lived a life of absolute wretchedness. Many of them have committed suicide. They couldn't cope with it. A handful here and there have begged to return, and some did. Like the criminal who has been in jail for 20 or 30 years and whose life has been regulated by whistles and horns, who cannot cope with freedom, the enormous blow that freedom was to these people was something they simply couldn't handle. And sometimes they simply had to get back to a totally regimented society because they had not learned to make decisions for themselves and to think for themselves. And sometimes when people come out of a system that is so stiflingly in control of the every nuance or shading of opinion, every value system, every desire, every thought, every taste or choice involving style, what will I wear, should I have a red pickup or a blue pickup, should my skirts be at the middle of my uh, knees or slightly below? Where does the thigh begin? Should my hairline be, my sideburns, at the middle of my earlobe or below my earlobe? Or would it be all right to wear chin whiskers all the way down? Or is that something that would be a sin in God's sight? Uh, what about uh, makeup? Should I put any of that dirt on my face? Should I have a choice one way or the other? People can't handle it. They can't handle personal decisions. And so many, many people in the Soviet Union who have defected. Now, the defectors are afraid to defect because they know what the government's going to do to their family. 
So some of the enormous pressures on them to stay inside the Soviet Union, the only nation that has had to build a huge wall and arm it with dogs and patrols and machine guns to keep its people in, instead of to keep other people out. How many of you want to go to the Soviet Union to live? Any volunteers? You know, but you could ask people over there if they dared raise their hands, but they don't. How many of you would like to go to America? And every one of them would be so, oh man, what a wonderful opportunity. But they'd sit on their hands and be afraid to say a word because they're scared to death of what would happen. It would be reprisals. They have families, and something might happen to their families. They'd be sent off to Siberia somewhere. Yes, the Soviet Union is an absolute colossal failure in government. The United States is the very best form of government and is the very best nation, in my opinion, together with some of the Commonwealth countries of the British Commonwealth, and I include Australia, <laughs> the very best nation in which you could live today. While the freedom that I am exercising here this morning might be available to me in a certain way, with certain licensing and within certain constraints in other of the English-speaking Western countries, and to some degree, even the Northwestern democracies, so-called, at least temporarily, of Europe, not really to the same degree. Even in the nation of Australia, as Mr. Ian Hupton would know, you've got to go to the General Post Office, GPO, and get yourself a little sticker. You have to pay a little price for it, a little license, to operate a receiver. I mean, to buy a radio. Buy a transistor or a radio, you have to have a GPO license. They limit the wattage of radio stations in Australia to 5,000 watts so that no one radio station can reach out more than the range of 5,000 watts. There are restrictions even in the nation of Canada to our north involving the Canadian Broadcast Corporation, which is government-owned and controlled and which insists upon a certain amount of Canadian content because they don't want the entire Canadian broadcasting system and television to become all totally Americanized and many of them feel it's much too Americanized as it is. So there is a government-owned airlines in Britain, a government-owned airlines in Australia, a government-owned airlines in Canada, Canadair or CP, Canadian Pacific Railway and airlines owned by the government. In the United States, it's all privately owned, free enterprise, free. I want to show you what Jesus Christ said about free enterprise for a moment. Let's turn over to Luke 19 and begin in verse 12. Luke 19 and verse 12. We're very familiar with the parable of the pounds, but there's some things in here we may not have thought before. Luke 19 and verse 12. He said, Therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds, meaning a certain amount of money. Back during World War II, a pound was worth $5.60. Now it's worth just very, really close, I haven't checked this morning, to about a dollar or so, and is hovering right around the dollar level. And said, occupy. Now that means be busy. Do your business. Use this. It's yours. Here, keep it until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. He's not going to tell us what to do. What did he tell them to do? He said, here, it's yours, keep it. He gave them a great gift. Now, what does that gift represent? Really, if you look at the broadest meaning, it represents your life, it represents your ability, it represents your opportunity. He says, here, it's yours, keep it. And he said, get busy with it and do the best you can with what you have to do with. 
When he returned, having received the kingdom, he commanded his servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. They were to become tradesmen. They were to be involved in the trades. That means business. That means being in the mercantile business, in the manufacturing business, in commodities or what have you. Buying and selling, trading, bartering, producing, manufacturing, packaging, distributing, selling, marketing your product. And he is involving here in the Holy Word of God money. And every one of them is given a gift from the great wealthy landowner, and they all start evenly. They all start equally. They're all given an equal opportunity. Now let's find out what happens based upon their several abilities when it comes time to reward them. He said, well, your pound has gained ten pounds. He had increased a thousand percent. Tremendously successful. And he said, well, thou good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little. It's a very little thing to be successful in business. Have thou authority over ten cities. So lessons learned, apparently, by using your talents, your abilities, your ingenuity, inventiveness, your creativity, your business acumen and sense can be utilized in governing and ruling over a city. And the second came, came saying, Lord, your pound has gained five pounds. Well, he was half as successful, but how do you know he wasn't exactly as successful? Because how do you know he didn't have less ability? How do you know how, that he did not actually achieve the same level with regard to what he had to start with as the first man did? He'd still increased by 500%. Five pounds. And he said, be thou over five cities. And another came saying, Lord, here's your pound, which I've kept laid up in a napkin, mattress money. For I feared thee, because you are an austere man, you take up that you lay not down, and reap that you did not sow. And he said unto him, Out of your own mouth will I judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Why then didn't you give my money into the bank? Does the Bible say there's anything wrong with having a bank? No, it doesn't. Not at all. There may be some things wrong with the banking system. There may be some dishonest bankers. One of them found his way into a high-level position of government, the Carter administration, got in all kinds of trouble later on, but I guess he finally got back out of it. I don't know. Don't know the whole story. But we hear about banks going belly up, and we hear about people speculating in foreign currency, and we hear about some illegal and some fraudulent maneuvers here and there, and lending money to people who finds his way back into the hands of the banker, and we hear about famous embezzlements and on, on and on involving banks. But banking, by and large, is not condemned in the Bible. Why didn't you give your money into the bank? Because banks pay interest, especially on a savings account, and especially in a money market fund. That at my coming, I might have required mine own with usury, really, interest. I might have gotten back what I gave to you and a little something besides. In other words, he's saying, look, if you are so ineffective, if you are so uncreative and unproductive that you don't know how to make money with the money I gave you, for pity's sake, go and put it into the hands of a professional who does know how to do something with that money and then you will benefit. But he didn't do it. Now, what about all this business of equality? How is God's government going to work? How is the government of Almighty God going to solve this problem? He said, take from him the pound and give it to him that has ten pounds. He didn't say, give it to the guy over there with nothing that I never gave anything to in the first place. He didn't say, give it to the one that has the least, which would be your basic you know, thought 
the way a man would reason this out is, oh, well, let's take the guy with the 10 pounds, he now has 11, and let's take the guy with 6, he had 1 plus 5 is 6, and let's get that 17 pounds plus this pounds makes 18, and we give one to the guy who made 10 and one to the guy who made 5, and we've got 16 left over to distribute among the poor. Let's do it the communist way. Let's take it all away from the guy who earned it, and let's give it to the people who never earned a dime. That's the way a lot of people reason. To some degree, that's the way our nation reasons, because we simply can't stand to see people starve. It's very strange that in the Bible it said very clearly, if any man will not work, neither shall he eat. But our government doesn't say that. If any man will not work, yes, he will eat on all the rest of us. So he said, but Lord, this wasn't rational. He's got 10 pounds. You wouldn't want to give it to him. But I say unto you that unto everyone which has shall be given, and from him that he has not, even that which he has shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them bring hither and slay them before me. That's a fairly harsh decision. Slay them before me. Now, I find it absolutely fantastic that only 3 point, what was it, 4 percent, 3.1 percent of the total land in production in the Soviet Union on private little farms produces 50 percent of their food. And there is one little model example inside a stifling oligarchy of total control over the minds of its people of how free enterprise, freedom, really works. It really works. If we draw that analogy a little further and apply it to the church, let's go over to the 15th chapter of the book of Acts and see something that perhaps we hadn't looked at before. This has to do with a little bit of church history of how a major decision was made, and many people were urging that something happened to the church at that time. Those people are alive and well, yet today that spirit still lives inside of God's church. There are people who actually think that God's church is God's government in action on the earth today. But no, God's government wields a rod of iron, and not just anybody knows how to use a rod of iron. Not just anybody knows how. The apostles and the elders were brought up to Jerusalem to consider a question about circumcision. Certain of the sect, verse 5, of the Pharisees which believed rose up, and they began to say it was needful to circumcise them, command them to keep the law of Moses. Well, it got to be such a controversy in the church that the entire leadership of the church, the apostles and the elders, came together, and there had been much disputing, verse 7, and that does mean what it says. There had been some voices raised. There had been some contrary opinions, there had been some arguments, there had been some give and take back and forth. You can't make this into some quiet little assemblage of a lot of pedantic professors sitting around saying, well, Professor Medley, I really do not believe it is that way. You dare? I, I would take the, the other point of view. I've learned how to be disagreeable without being uh, necessarily obnoxious, but uh, frankly, sir, you're out of order. I know I've heard people try to spiritualize this away because they just can't stand the idea of controversy in the church. Controversy in the church? Why, it's the last place in the world you should ever have controversy. We will tolerate no controversy. If you disagree with me, the idea is you get out of here. Right? Isn't that the way to solve it? Isn't that what Paul did to Barnabas? Barnabas, if you don't go along with my decision involving young John Mark, you get out of here. No. They went their separate ways. They had a very great conflict of opinion 
involving a personnel choice, and it was a personality conflict. I don't know who had the ego problem. Are you going to tell me you think the Apostle Paul had no ego at all? He plainly said that he was a wretched man. A lot of people say, well, he was lying. Uh, he, he was too righteous to be wretched, but it's a good posture for a person it's a good posture for a person to say, oh, I'm a wretched man. And then everybody looking at him says, oh, he's so righteous. To be able to say that he is wretched. But I say that the Apostle Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am. I don't want to know why he was wretched, but I know that I believe him. I believe he probably was. He probably realized he had some personality defects. Maybe he was the one with the ego problem. But here were two leaders of basically equal rank, and they came clashing head on on a mere personality choice. And they split up. And the work of God got done in two different branches where there was no fellowship between those people that we ever read of in the book of Acts again. Barnabas went his way preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And Paul went his way preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the gospel of the kingdom of God got preached and Paul and Barnabas wouldn't have anything to do with each other. Now that's not the way they tell it in some places. The way they would have it is there is no room for disagreement. You agree with me right down the line to the bottom line, or you are in rebellion against government. And there is no room for dissension and disagreement. Everybody must be a yellow pencil. And now here arose this dispute about the imposition of, you know, if you're 55, a very painful operation on these people. And so they wanted to take them all out and circumcise them. And they began arguing back and forth. But look at what Peter began to say. God, verse 8, knowing the hearts, bear them witness, the Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us. Peter had learned that lesson the hard way, you know, by the great vision at Cornelius' house and everything, and how the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit of God. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith not by some physical operation. Now, therefore, why do you tempt God, look at the language, to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples? Here were religious leaders trying to impose a question of style. It was stylish to be Jewish and to be circumcised. It was definitely not stylish to be Gentile and to be uncircumcised. It just had to do with the cutting of the flesh. In this case, not the earlobe, but another part of the anatomy. And this bunch of people thought you looked more righteous if you were in style. And let's go back to the days of Moses and Abraham and so on, and let's take the symbol of the covenant God made with those people in our flesh. But the steadier hearts and sounder minds among them prevailed and said, Why do you tempt God? to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even like they will be. We believe the grace and the mercy of God is going to save us. We don't think that some outward manifestation of obedience to an edict of a board of men is what we have to measure up to to get into the kingdom of God. All the audience kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul. And then James answered and said, Hearken unto me, verse 13, Simeon, Peter, 
has declared how God of the first did visit the Gentiles to take out a people for his name. And then he quoted some scriptures, and he said in verse 19, Wherefore my sentence is... Now, I've heard it, and I've read it, that allegedly Peter made the final decision that Peter was in charge here, and that James only formalized it. I, I, I just can't quite handle that. It looks to me like when it says final, and then a little later on it is actually called a like an edict, or like a decision that James, who was the brother, you know, of Jesus Christ, half-brother, it was called a decree over in chapter 16, verse 4. He summarized it, and in that sense it was like a committee, a unanimous committee decision, but James was the one who made the final sentence, or the final decision, that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles return to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication, from things strangled, from blood. Moses of old time has in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church. This was a unanimous decision to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. Notice, chief men among the brethren. Now, they're called prophets down in verse 32 a little later on. And they wrote letters, and they said greetings, and told, us how they were, told them how they were assembled with one accord, verse 25, and that they didn't need to worry about circumcision, but just to abstain from meats and things polluted and offered idols and so on. And if you do these things, you'll do well. So the church narrowly avoided, uh, avoided the imposition of circumcision upon its members. But it was a church-wide decision, and it narrowly avoided that imposition of some man-made argument that these Pharisees brought with them from the Pharisaical religion and tried to impose it upon God's church. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Am I not free? In Romans, the eighth chapter, in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Absolutely free from the law of sin and death. Now, in physical government in this world, there is demonstrable proof for all of the world to see that when a man enjoys the fresh air of freedom, he is able to achieve the ultimate state of that man in whatever he chooses to pursue. Had the Jew not been allowed the safe haven of the United States of America, the literature of the world, the science of the world, the art, the music of the world, the entertainment of the world would never have occurred in the way that it did. You can point to so many people in our history, whether it's the Einsteins of our history, whether it is some of the great musicians, including George M. Kohan, the word Kohan merely means priest in Hebrew, and of course it is a Levit Levitical name, or Sammy Kahn, or, or those names in entertainment, uh, in art, in literature, in science, as I said, and because they were not stiflingly controlled and put in their ghettos and treated like a fourth-class citizen or even sent to the ovens under the pogroms of Adolf Hitler, in the United States of America, the Jewish race has been able to achieve its highest pinnacle of achievement because it was in a society where that Jewish spirit was free 
and was free to exercise itself. And so it must be in the church of Almighty God. The church of Almighty God is not the government of God in action. Because I do not wield a rod of iron, I don't know how to be careful enough with a child with a rod of iron. I may make a mistake. I don't know how or whether to judge the heart of someone who is so wicked that he needs to be hit right across the middle of the teeth or across the bridge of the nose, which would probably kill him because that's what he deserves. And I'm standing here with a rod of iron and I have to administer the punishment. The only human being who has ever drawn breath, who could have been turned loose in this world with a rod of iron in his hand, is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And there's never one, been one before or since. Now, before Almighty God is going to turn us loose with a rod of iron, we're going to have to get out of our system the idea that the military organizations, the oligarchies, the absolute monarchies, the despots and dictatorships of this world are the prime example for the kind of rulership we need in the church. Almighty God doesn't want a group of dictators running around this world with rods of iron ready to smash into shivers anybody that disagrees with their choice in suits and neckties. He isn't going to give you a rod of iron because he won't hand one to just anybody. He will hand a rod of iron to somebody who has the wisdom of Solomon, the patience of Job, the love and mercy of Jesus Christ, the courage and love of David, men with the qualities of character that we read of in the Bible, like a, a lineup of heroes. You heard a little bit about that in the sermonette. Men and women who have achieved that kind of character, who have in their hearts the requirements of the Holy Spirit of God. And you listen to see, see what they are and apply them to ourselves. Think of human beings you know. I know a church where people are in terror of their ministry in the same way I know a nation where citizens are in terror of the KGB. They're afraid to talk openly. They're afraid to come and visit across certain borders and restricted lines because they're going to be spied upon and because their family may have to pay the consequences. I know that that exists. And I'll tell you that until we get it out of our hearts and minds that the way to administer justice in the church is with a rod of iron, and saying, you will do as I say or I will put you out, we will never be qualified to administer the loving, merciful rod of iron. And it can be merciful and gentle, as well as very hard, and unresilient and unyielding, that God is going to give us. Think of some people you know. I know a case or two or three. I get letters dribbling across my desk at the rate of six or eight every single week of people telling me stories so absolutely heartrending you cannot believe it. Of the one individual in their life they ought to go trust and feel warmer toward, and feel their secret is safe, and they can actually pour out their hearts, and they can get solace and comfort and succor and aid, is their minister. And instead it ends up he's the one individual they fear the most. They're scared half to death of him. All right, you can substitute a human being's name if you want to. The Holy Spirit is and produces in us love, joy, ebullience, happiness, joy, effervescence. Peace. Now, let's just think of what it says in 1 Corinthians 13 about the product of the Holy Spirit in our minds. That is the chapter on love. You know something about love? Love lets go. Love lets go. Love does not cling. It does not hang on. 
There is smotherly love. There is possessive love. Satan the devil wants to possess you. The Holy Spirit never will. It will only gently lead and urge and guide. The Holy Spirit will not possess you. It will lead you. Love lets go. The greatest example of letting go you can imagine in your life, well, there are a lot of them, Abraham was willing to let go of the son that he had prayed for and wanted and yearned for all of his life until he was an elderly old man and finally was given a son and God said, you take him out and offer him. And Abraham was willing to give him and to let go. The greatest example of all, God the Father had to let go of his only son who came down to this earth and risked everything to become a human being. And heaven had one member of the God family during that 33 and a half years when Christ was on this earth facing every temptation we do every single day and overcoming every one of them like a champion, like a hero, someone we can love, admire, respect, and worship and adore for all of our lives. And what was another great example of letting go? The moment when God the Father, with Christ hanging on the stake, turned around and walked away in the back blackness of the universe and let Christ see him go. And he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? His father could have answered from the blackness of the universe, because love lets go. Because I have to let you go, son, and you have to do it all by yourself. Because I love you so much that you've got to do it alone. I can't do it for you. Parents ought to listen to that a little bit now and then. Parents sometimes have to be willing to let go. Let their children do a few things on their own. Trust them. Not all the time, not when they're too young, not with a wrong decision. But love learns to let go. Has there been a classic love case when somebody said, Will you marry me? And he said, No, darling, I can't because I'm not good for you. I love you so much that I can't yoke you with a clod like I am. If there's ever been a love story like that, I'm yet to hear of it. The love stories I've always heard are possession. I've got to have you. But love lets go. Apply what it says, that love is not easily provoked. I know of people who are supposedly in the ministry of Jesus Christ that can be provoked, I mean, beyond their ability to be coherent by the slightest little seeming slight to their great vaunted authority. The worst thing you can do to some egotist in pompous authority is to provoke him. I'm reminded of the young Swabi who down in boot camp is walking along and there's He's, he's over there back, you know, sweeping the floor, and along comes some guy with great big broad stripes all over his sleeve and scrambled eggs on his cap, and the swabby's only been there about 13 hours. He says, hey, buddy, you got a match? Guy walks over and flips out his Zippo lighter. Sure. He lights a cigarette, and about that time, the chief petty officer comes up. Hey, ho! Snap to Get this guy. You dress him down. Get that cap-squared sailor. This is the admiral, the commandant of the base. The sailor is saluting. He's absolutely terrified. I'm sorry, sir, I didn't realize it. And the Admiral says, that's all right, son, but don't you ever do that to an ensign. <laughs> I love that story. I've told that many times. But it illustrates a point in the military service that you can't get away with that with some people. Love is not easily provoked, is kind, vaunteth not itself. And really doesn't need to be vaunted and praised and continually pampered and patted and, and just hearing nothing but the echo of your own name. Vaunteth not itself. I take 1 Corinthians 13 and I use the famous plastic overlay where you will make a presentation in business, you know, with your graphs and charts. And I take all of these things about love and then I take the character 
of certain human individuals I know who are supposed to be up before God's people and who are supposed to exemplify the spirit of the living God that flows out of our innermost being like rivers of living water. And I fail. I can't find that image behind my plastic overlay of 1 Corinthians 13 and Galatians 5.22. Love, joy, peace. Suffers long, endures all things, hopes all things, believes the best all the time. Doesn't believe the worst story that comes to the individual immediately and leap to a conclusion and take some violent action with a rod of iron, but believes the best. The whole question before us every day is one of government. When we go back to our workaday week, everything that we do in business, you that are farmers, you that are small business people, you with jobs, you that are even on fixed income in Social Security, your greatest concern, what are those men in Washington going to do? It's an issue of government. And God is saying that we are training to become members of a coming world-ruling government. There's almost too much emphasis on the word rule. It tends to sound like a ruler. When I was a kid in school, they come along and wrap me on the knuckles with a ruler. And you get the idea that a ruler is always jumping in the middle of you. He's standing so close to you, calling you dirty names, he's spitting in your face. He is all drawn up in his righteous, egotistical anger and absolutely spewing invective in your face and telling you what a low louse you are, not fit to draw breath in the same building. And you get the idea. You see the military man, the general, chews out the colonel, who turns around and chews out the lieutenant. He goes in and just about kicks the sergeant right in the middle of his you-know-what, who turns around and gives the, uh, the uh, poor little old rookie there, the brand-new private, the latrine duty. And the private's in a latrine, and the dog walks by, and you know what he does? He kicks the dog. <laughs> I've seen it happen that right on down the line, you tend to treat people the way you've been treated. And that if you have been under a stifling regime and you have had to take the kicks, cuts, curses, and bruises, and then someday they give you a little authority, you say, now it's my turn. Remember what God said about the son of, uh, of Solomon? And what happened, how he lost the kingdom? He said, my father chastised you with whips. I'm going to chastise you with scorpions. You thought it was tough under him. I'm going to make it several times tougher. I know how to be an autocrat. I know how to be a dictator. No, a rod of iron is not for everybody. A rod of iron is for little old ladies, little sweet old ladies, who know if some other little sweet old lady has had her false teeth kicked nearly down her throat by a six-foot, four-inch gangster age 19, that she ought to lay him down on his back and take that rod of iron and smash him right in the face with it. But at the same time, she knows that if there's a gentle little sweet child, all she does is just show him the edge of it. Just look at this, son. Now, now be good. She's balanced, and she knows how to use that rod of iron. Rod of iron isn't for everybody. It's only for God's children, for people that have learned the lesson of real righteous government. How does God rule you? How often has he had to forgive you? Even during the feast, will he forgive you for little oversights and mistakes and sins and faults? You bet he will. He's just begging you to come to him and ask for it. He wants you to come to him and ask for forgiveness because he is a father who loves us with every ounce of his being, and we're the most unworthy recipients of that love you could ever imagine. But God the Father wants us to learn the lesson of government, but his kind of government, not a monarchy, not an oligarchy, not a democracy, not committee rule, 
and certainly not ruled by an autocracy or some sort of anarchy of one individual with various, perhaps, personality hang-ups and conflicts who is over total control over a lot of other human individuals. So the lessons of government that we're to learn throughout the year, as well as here at the feast, are the lessons of gentleness and goodness, meekness and kindness, mercy and love, and of course, forgiveness. A rod of iron isn't for everybody, but I hope someday it's going to be for you and for me.